Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. I have good news. We only have this and one more sermon in Second Samuel, and we will be done with Samuel series. I know you liked it. It was good. This is the 74th sermon. <laughs> I'm reaching for John MacArthur levels here. So I know that we're all excited about the end. I am. Um, but what we're going to, we have two weeks now where we're going to go into Holy Week. And so you have to wait three weeks for the end of the story. But I think you guys are patient. You can do it. And then what we will do after that is begin a series uh, in the book of Titus. A little palate cleanser. But if you have a Bible, we're actually going to be in two sections simultaneously, as I just have explained before. The end of the book is a chiasm. The epilogue is four chapters. There are thematically, uh, it's structured in such a way as to, as to make specific points by connecting things that otherwise seem disconnected. So we had, uh, the last two weeks, the poems in the very center of the epilogue. What, what the epilogue is all about is the first the psalm that David sang in response to God's greatness, and then his short poem on the ideal king. And what uh, brackets both of those is the story of David's mighty men. David was made great by the Lord, and because of that greatness that the Lord gave him, he made others great. And that's what we're going to look at today. Great men are never alone. Okay, This idea that uh, Tom Brady won all those Super Bowls, or that Michael Jordan won all those <laughs> titles, or that George Washington, all by his lonesome, founded America. We love this idea of the man made for the times. Uh, but mighty men, even men like David, are never alone. So before we open the word of God, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for David and his ministry in Israel, his leadership amongst your people, his faith in them, Lord, his confidence in them, his love of them. Lord, he was a man who loved mighty deeds, and it inspired his soldiers to do great things for your honor and glory. We pray that as we read of them now, that we would uh, remember the glorious things that they have done and the glorious God that they served. And we pray that we would be like them, Lord, in, in the arenas that you have given us and against the enemies that you have brought against us, that we would be mighty men of Jesus, just as these were mighty men of David. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son and amen. Well, Mike is going to preach a warlike sermon. I'm shocked. <laughs> now, what we have here, um, and we're going to go through both sections. I'm going to read both of them because they're very important to remember the men that are recorded there. Chapter 21 Verses 15 through 22, that's the first section. It records the detailed exploits of a mere four of David's warriors. All of them are famous because they slaughtered giants. Now, I'm going to just pause for a second and comment on this. I'm not going to insult you by coming up here and trying to prove that there were giants. I'm assuming that there were giants because it seems to me moderately elementary at this point. Um, this, is, I, this has to do with how I came to the faith. I had to deal with the fact that a whale actually would have swallowed a man, when I, when, <laughs> right? And I came to believe that because Jesus isn't a liar, and therefore the world that I live in was different than the one I thought I was living in as a pagan. So for me, when now talking about giants is like talking about archangels. If you are, however, confused by this, and you would like to discuss the fact that there are giants in the Bible, 
There is an article that Doug Wilson wrote in Credenda Agenda years ago called A Love Story. I have copies of it. I will, I will drive it over to your house this week. I love it so much and let you read it. Otherwise, I will simply reference C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said that we do not tell our children fairy tales so that they believe in dragons. We tell them fairy tales so that they know dragons can be slain. Okay? Uh, I assume giants and dragons and even unicorns in the Bible. And what we have here isn't, right, this pro- like David's not trying to prove there are giants. David wants us to know that we can kill giants. <laughs> and the reason is because the land is full of giants. The land is full of the kind of mighty men that resist us and the God that we serve. And it's not important as much that we believe in them. I think that's self-evident. What's important, I think, what we all have a harder time believing is that we can overcome them. Now, David the giant killer, of course, then, is surrounded by giant killers. (laughs) As the king goes, so go the people. And if he's the kind of guy with this kind of um, God-fearing swagger to slay dragon or giants, you better believe that his men will follow suit. This is what happens. Um, In business world, they call it the law of the lid. Okay, an organization will only be as great as its leader. If, if, it's, if its leader's qualities or lack thereof of qualities um, affects the entire organization, a church, a business, a family can only be as good as its leader. Okay? And, and so David here sets the standard, and what we see are that the men under his supervision rise to it. Okay, now, in chapters 23, verses 8 through 39, we see that the ideal king is surrounded by warriors who follow his example. In one sense, these men function like Eve to Adam, helpers suitable to the king. David was a new Adam, the ideal king. He was a gardener. That's what we looked at in the short poem from last week. The ideal king is a gardener. That's what Adam was supposed to be. That's what Jesus is. He is the vine dresser. A good gardener. Now, a good gardener creates the ideal environment in which people thrive. They know how much water, how much fertilizer. They have iron tools with which they use to weed, with which they use to prune. They are the ideal gardener. And th- these men were the tools in David's hands. He, they are the, th- the, the iron weapons in his hands, wearing their iron armor with their iron weapons, riding upon their steeds with their iron armor. They were the tools in David's hands by which he um, gardened the land of Israel. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 6 through 7, we read, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Now, all professions function this way. You are as only, a man is only as good as his tools, okay? But the tools are only as good as the man wielding them, okay? And that, that's partially what we see here. David was great, but the men in David's company were also great. They were great tools, and, 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 and they were useful for the task that he had, and because he was skilled, he used them well. Okay, now, you may be uncomfortable with this, uh, but this is the proper use of a man. The proper use of a man is he is a tool in God's hands to do surgery, right, to do heart surgery, to garden the garden. This is the proper use, as Paul says, of a man to be an iron weapon in in the hand of a skilled king. Now, our tools, whether pots and pans or calculators and processing computers or spreadsheets and fine wooden paintbrushes, 
All of them take upon themselves the skill of the one using them. Okay, a wrench is only, as I proved earlier this week, my son was there, a wrench is only as good as the man holding the wrench. Okay? <laughs> and I was turning the wrench the wrong direction. Why? Because I'm me, and I don't really know how a wrench works, I guess. Okay? So, but I did, it did not prevent me from saying, what's wrong with this wrench? Now, I can sit down at a processing computer and crack my knuckles, right, and write 2,500 words. That's a little different. So, so the, the things that we are using are only as good as the person using them, okay? But in order to be uh, good at our jobs, it's important to have the right tools in the hands, in our hands. Okay, so King David's people assist him in tending the garden land of Israel by battling the weeds that would otherwise choke the soil of his people, Right? He's a good gardener, he has iron weapons, and that's what he uses them for. So if you turn with me to chapter 21, I'm going to read verses 15 to 22, and then I'll just explain, summarize these mighty men in one go. Chapter 21, verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbabanab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then uh, Sibachai, the... Hushathite struck down Saph, who was once uh, one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elnahan, the son of Jar Oregum, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like the weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descendants from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Amen. Giants can be slain. Now, this section gives us more detail about David's wars with the Phil- Philistines, which was summarized way back in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 8. It just gave us a summary. David went to a war against the Philistines and whooped them the end, moving on. Now, what, what we have here at the end of his story is they go back and they give us more detail. And the detail isn't just about what David has done, because David can't do anything alone. It's about David and his men. The incidents are here recorded also appear in 1 Chronicles 20 with some slight differences of emphasis and detail, which is always how it works. If you want a parallel story, go there, 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, what we have here is an honor roll consisting of outstanding acts of bravery on behalf of Israel. Now, from his youth, David fought giants. He was a very young man when he fought Goliath. And the fact that his men were also giant killers testifies to the power of his example. Okay? The, he can do it, so can I. And that is what a good leader instills in his people, okay? Whether it's your children, whether you have authority at work, whether you have authority in your own home, ladies, what you do sets the standard for what your children can do. If, if you talk about what you can't get done, well, I can't obey, I can't get all this work done, I can't this, I can't that, your children will believe that they also cannot. But if you show them, right, by faith, 
by trusting in the Lord, by obedience to him, you show them what you can do, they will grow up and they will be able to do likewise. And this works in the workplace. I remember in, in my previous life when I had a real job, when I worked at the courthouse, there, there was always discussions about what we could actually get accomplished in the work hours, and it was a union house, and it was the, and it was the city or the county that I worked for, yada, 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 and I loved showing them what a man could do, even when he works for a union. Now, a faithful and courageous leader inspires the conduct of his followers, whether he is a father, a mother, a pastor, a boss, a lay leader, within the community. That is what we are setting the standard for what can be done. We are repeatedly told throughout the Bible to imitate our leader's good conduct, and David inspired good men to imitate him. Verse 19, if you go down, you look at verse 19, it states that Elanon killed Goliath the Gittite. Now I'm going to deal with this one first because it covers a lot of ground. If you recall, Goliath the Gittite from 1 Samuel chapter 17, wasn't it David who killed him? Well, it was. And what you have here is a copyist's error. This is a mistake. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel when I am standing here in front of the Bible, in front of all of you, telling you that there is a mistake in the Bible, but it's true. We can't hide it. And, and pretending like it's not there it doesn't help anyone. Okay, the the books that we have, the manuscripts that we have from which we get our translations were handed down to us in a long line of of dedicated work by faithful people. And occasionally there are mistakes. Now, this is what I love about this. This is a mistake. We know it's a mistake because in, in 1 Chronicles, it actually says that this guy killed Goliath's brother. So there you go. You go there and you're like, oh, well, this makes sense because this reconciles the fact that David killed him back in the first Samuel. And, uh, okay, it's the brother of, Gitt- of, um, I'm sorry, of Goliath to Gittite. And, and, and what you're doing, you're seeing there, 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 there is a mistake, but it's easy to correct. And nobody's, the, the faith, the doctrine of justification by faith alone doesn't hang upon it. Okay? You, ha- you have this copyist error and someone will be like, well, look, there's, uh, there are errors. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'm still saved. Jesus is still Jesus, whatever, okay? So what I want to talk about is don't overreact when people do these things, okay? We should be able to say, yes, there are errors. And you know what? When you find errors like this, none of them actually really come, when it comes down to doctrine, matter. And I have no problem saying that and sleeping just fine. So this is the standard I'm trying to set for all of you, okay? Don't, don't try to bend... <laughs> bend over backwards in ways that you can and, and try to an- answer for these things and talk, talk people out of it and make it seem like they don't exist. They exist, and they're interesting, and they don't matter. So now we're going to move on. It says in verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20, again, war. Okay? In David's early days, there was constantly war with the Philistines because the first king of Israel, Saul, did not get rid of the Philistines. He had essentially one job dealing with the Philistines, and he failed to do it. And David comes along, and because of the failed leadership of the first king, David has to fight them again and again and again and again and again and again and make up for what Saul failed to do. So his whole story, in summary, is again he fought the Philistines, again he fought the Philistines. And the Philistines were mighty, but they, they um, under, the two, under Samson's uh, judgeship, Remember, uh, Samson pushed the pillars, and all of the leaders of the Philistines were there, and they all died, right? The, the mighty houses of Philistia had fallen, and that was just the generation 
before Saul in the generation of Samuel. And so what, what happened is that they were very weak, and so they kept having to hire giants. <laughs> when when, when, when a, a, a mighty military power perhaps invades another military power, and that military power isn't doing so well, what they will do is hire out and get bigger guns. <laughs> like, you know what we need is a plane that flies faster, a missile that goes further, and a tank that has thicker armor. And that's essentially what Felicia is doing. They hire the workout for giants because they think that giants are fiercer. And we saw back when David came on the scene, what? what? They had one giant out there, the Philistines. And all the army of Israel was terrified of him. And nobody wanted to come out and fight him. So it's a pretty good strategy. This often works. If you're a bunch of freedom fighters and you come rolling up on... <laughs> on the enemy, and they have a bunch of M1 Abram tanks, you're, you're a little bit more hesitant to attack them. But then comes along a guy with a shoulder-mounted missile who has no problem taking out tanks, and what is that going to do to the entire Ukrainian army? I see what I did there. I spilled over. The entire Ukrainian army will be like, well, we can destroy tanks. Watch us. And then they do uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of tanks. And, and what, it's fascinating to me that Philistia is actually, the, the fact that they're hiring out for giants shows their weakness, not their strength, okay? Because they don't have the armies to do it themselves anymore. And God has orchestrated this, and the Philistia is going to save itself by these giants, and, and what does Yahweh do but bring a bunch of giant killers into the army of Israel, inspired by David, the mighty man, and they go out and they slay giants, now, a good king is a gardener who weeds out the sons of Belial, the worthless sons of Satan, and he provides an environment in which his people flourish. And so this war is no problem because he is a good gardener who's ready and willing with iron tools to weed out the worthless sons and the enemies of Israel. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. Yahweh says to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So what David was promised once he became the actual king of Israel was that God would, through him, provide peace for the people of Israel. So he is the king of peace. And he's the king of peace because what he does is he goes out and he wins at war. Now, there are two kinds of peace. Okay, There's two kinds of peace. The peace that exists because you don't have conflict. Beautiful. And the kind of peace that only comes at the end of conflict. And what we see is that the Son of God and his mighty men are the kind of men that bring peace only because they are victorious in war. And, and this is something that if I, if I could get the entire evangelical church together, I would explain it to them. Because there are people who are telling us that there will be peace if we stop fighting. And I say, well, you know what, there's another kind of peace. And that is after we win. Okay? And, and what you see in the life of David is what? Right? Who told him? Who told him? that he would be used as an instrument to bring peace. Yahweh did. And so in, in David's poems about the ideal king, in David's psalm, he gives all the credit to who? Yahweh. But Yahweh says, I will give you peace. And so David says, okay, then I will go out and I will get peace through victory. So when Jesus says to us, do not fear the world, for I have overcome the world, why is it we want to make peace with them? Why is it we want to say peace, peace, where there is no peace? 
Why do we want to say, well, no, fighting isn't the way, and so what we're not going to do is fight. Well, I say, why not fight? We already won, right? Do you know how much easier it is, if you read military history, to fight <laughs> when you've already won, right? When you're, when you're the column that's just like, oh, the army fled away from here, and now all we have to do is follow them, and it's kind of hard to go fast enough to even keep up with them. They're fleeing so fast. When you're fighting that kind of war, it's actually a lot easier. The problem with us is that we don't believe that Jesus actually won. This is reflected in our eschatology. This is reflected in our worship. This is reflected in the way that we live our lives. We don't believe that he's actually overcome the world. We're terrified of the world. We're terrified of the world. We're terrified of their vaccines. We're terrified of their educational programs. We're terrified, terrified, terrified. We don't believe that he actually overcame the world. Okay, our king did what? What did he do? He hauled his cross up the hill. He allowed them to nail iron through his flesh. He took upon him the sins of everyone sitting in this room. They then put him in the ground after he died. And then he came back. And then he walked around free. Nobody came and tried to arrest him a second time. Nobody could put him to death a second time. He took his time enjoying his people and spreading the good news. And then when he was ready, he went back to heaven. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and his instructions to us was, do not fear the world, for I have overcome it. And so are we the kind of people who are bringing peace in the world because there is an absence of conflict, or are we the kind of people who are bringing peace because we've already won? Right? This is, people are very confused about even what evangelism and apologetics is. Apologetics should be this. Nice argument, Jesus won. Oh, you, you want to talk about ethics. Well, where do ethics come from? Doesn't there have to be someone bigger than, than right? To have a metaphysic, don't you have to have, anyway, right? <laughs> we, we, we give too much away when we get into these arguments. And I don't think you should be surly about it. And I don't think that you should avoid logic. I think what you ought to do is assume the premise that he already won. And therefore, what we're doing is letting everybody know it's too late, right? I think we should have more of an apologetic of nice try, it's too late. And if we did, if we believed, right, if we believed the way David believed, what would we do to those giants that are standing in our way? What would we do in those conflicts in which we are so terrified and fraught with uncertainty? If we believed that the world was already overcome in the Lord Jesus Christ, how would we be different? How would our lives look different? Now, these lists of David's mighty men, these are gardening exploits, right? Now, how many of you guys ever think, you know what I want to do? I want to hear the greatest gardener who ever lived. And I sat down, I wrote a book about that first day he dug up the dirt in his backyard. And then I went on and I told you all. (laughs) One of the problems that we have is that when, when, and, and this appeals to us and our flesh, is we like the stories of David overcoming the world because he used a real sword. Like, wait. I don't get to actually throw spears. (laughs) And this does put a lot of people off. Because we start hearing about how we're fighting a war and we're going to bring peace, and everybody starts upgrading the optics on their ARs, and we think that this is what the Lord means. Okay, Now, you should upgrade the optics on your AR, but don't get me wrong. But that's not actually how we're going to win. And, and, and part of this whole story, the problem we have a hard time seeing how it, appeal, it applies to us is because we have a very difficult time seeing the kind of warfare that we're doing. It's not the same, and so we don't think there's a war. 
And I'm saying there is. It is different. And our, our explanation of it is, nice try, we already won. Now, David is the ideal king. Okay? It says in 2 Samuel 23, chapter 4, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful description. Now we see in this first list of mighty men that David, who was worn out by battle, is in danger of dying. His opponent is a descendant of a giant whose spear, though heavy, seven and a half pounds, was only half the weight of Goliath's spear. But Abishai didn't hesitate to attack the formidable foe and kill him, saving the king's life. Abishai saw that David was in need, that David was threatened, and and he saves him from this giant. He's more afraid of, right, what he would rather, he's more afraid of losing David than fighting a giant. Now think about that for a second. He would rather fight the giant and die than possibly lose David. And, and, and then the men get together and say, okay, listen, that was a close call. So what we're not going to do is let David go out to fight anymore because, because David in his youth could fight all day long, including giants, it's no problem. But there is a limit to what a man can do. And so he's getting older, he's getting tired, and what they don't want, it says, is the, they don't want um, the lamp of Israel to be quenched. We cannot have the light of Israel go out. And so what we have to do is protect this lamp. Okay? We have to put it up on a table and, and, and protect it from damage. We need to make it so that it can be seen and that nobody is going to hurt it. Now, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 4 says, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. The king is considered the light of Israel. This language that Jesus uses in the New Testament is not new. This goes all the way back to the first kings. They were the light of Israel. They were the wisdom of Israel. They were the insight of Israel. How often does David in his, in his glory days appeal to the Lord and find out what the Lord wants them to do, finds out how they ought to win the battle? He is the light. He's enlightening the people. And as he says himself in his own poem, he's like the sun that makes a fruitful land. And they want to protect that light. Now, this right here is is probably the most crucial thing that happens in David's life for this reason. Unlike Saul, David is not jealous that Abishai killed the giant. Now, how did Saul react when the ladies came back singing, Saul has his thousands and David his ten thousands? Right? That ruined everything. Saul was envious. Saul was jealous. Saul could not handle that anyone in his entourage could be even equal to him, let alone greater than him. And David, who is called the Lamp of Israel, is outdone in battle by one of his subordinates. Right? He has no problem sharing the title of giant killer. Oh, look, you're a giant killer too. Well, maybe what I'll do now that I'm old is rest, and I'll let my giant killer sons go out and fight this battle for me. This is why David has a heart after God. This is why David is humble. This is why we remember him. He is a giant killer. God gave him that title, and he does not care if if he gets to share it. He wants to share it. He wants to be surrounded by these kinds of men. Saul couldn't handle it, and most men can't, right? When our sons get older and they start to have prowess of their own, when they start to be taller than us, when they are 
of nobler spirit and conduct than us, when they earn more than us, when they have higher degrees than we do, when our daughters grow up and and they themselves are young and beautiful the way the world loves and and ladies are getting older at that time, it's hard for us to see people reach the, not only reach the level we're at, but exceed it. Okay, and I, I know a man who, who had six kids, and his father only had five, and it was funny for a moment that, oh, look, I outdid you. Okay, I, I, I know a guy who has six kids, one more than his father, and they had this funny little moment where the son thought it was really funny in his youth to be like, aha, I have one more than you, as if it's some sort of, comp- it is a comp- it's not a competition. Sorry. Now, the father, the, the old man who hears this boastful young guy say this, say, yeah, good, good. And if you need help um, paying for taking them to the fair or getting them some dental work, let me know. <laughs> right? We are raising children that we don't want to just be equal with us in the kingdom of heaven. We want them to succeed, exceed. We want them to go further. We want them to go higher. We want them to, to be safer, wealthier Right? We want them to accomplish more in their personal life, their spiritual life, their prayer life. And what, what David is an excellent father. He raises men and he is not afraid to share the honor and the glory with them. Saul couldn't do it. Now Jesus, right? Think of Jesus. He is the son of God. Now imagine. Imagine actually for eternity being the, the begotten of the father. And then what you do is, is then you're made man. And so you become the son of God in a completely different way than you already were and outdo everybody else in doing that task. And then at the end, you're like, you know what? I want you all to be sons of God too. Think of the humility of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just want us, right, to be equal with him. He wants us to go all the way back to the right hand of the Father, and he has no problem with us being called sons of God. It's not like he's in heaven saying, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You know how hard it was for me to get this title? Twice? (laughs) How about we call them servants? How about we call them slaves? How about we call them hirelings? How about we call them anything other than this? And, And Jesus, like his father David, is not afraid of others reaching the level that they are at or excelling them. Because when you're dealing with the glory of God, descending and dwelling upon us, there is plenty to go around. We are in no way going to diminish the, the quantity of glory when we're, sh- right? when we're sharing it with one another, when it doesn't diminish the quantity or quality of the glory when God shares it with us. So why do we receive this thing as a gift, or anything as a gift, and then we get jealous and envious of other people when they have it too, right? I, I've said it before. I remember I was converted uh, out of paganism to Christianity, and, and, you know, and I, I talk very humbly about that like I'm supposed to. And then the first time that I saw this guy that I knew was twice the pagan I had been sitting in church one time, and I was like, whoa, who let that guy in? <laughs> right? And, and this is true on this level, but it's true of our children, uh, Doug Wilson says, you know, it's hard for young men to stand up when their fathers are sitting on them. It's hard for, for women when this world obsesses over youth, the youth of women, right? To get older and to have young women who grow up and, are, and, and everybody says it looks like you in your, when you were in your 20s, right? This is what I heard said to a woman recently. Oh, she looks just like you when you were 20. 
Like, how about now? She doesn't look like her when she's now? Like, <laughs> and, and this is very difficult for women. These jealousies and envies that arise. Now, how often, um, say you, you, you're at work, and you get, a, you get a young guy who comes in fresh out of college, and you're responsible for him, and you've got to teach him all the ways of, of the company, and you've got to tell him what's what, where to go, and how to do it. And then later on, he excels you. What if you have to go into his office, and he's your boss? Okay, this is, uh, I'm going to embarrass him, but so when I first came here, Steve was the elder, and I used to sit at his feet and say, tell me what to do, and I will do it. And now, now he comes to me for advice, and he does it with humility. He does it with grace. There's a man right now, one of the greatest ministers in the CRC in the history of it, in my opinion, because he is in his 70s, and he knows that the end is near, and he's one of the pillars of our community in the CRC, and he has hired his replacement, has taken the lower place, and elevated this young man to be the pastor of the church, and he's the lowly assistant now, and he has no problem with this. Why? Because he loves the, the young man, he loves the Lord God, he loves the people of God more than he loves his own reputation. And I'm telling you, we're already watching his replacement, the guy he hired, excel him in some ways. And it's, and it's not because the guy himself is so glorious. It's because in, in this humble situation that they have created here, how can they have anything but glory in the kingdom of heaven? And, and, and this is so hard for people. Who comes next? Who's going to replace me? How many companies have failed because the CEOs can't let go of the power? How many fathers and mothers are jealous of their own children? How many pastors are clutching on to the power that they have? Um, This is what man does. And what we see here with David is that he has no problem sharing the glory. There is enough to go around. So rather it's in your home, rather it's in the church, rather it's in your company, there is enough glory to go around. And your responsibility is to raise the kind of disciples, whether they're children or, or co-workers, that will not only reach the level you're at, but by the grace of God, go further. And this is a lesson that modern Americans need to learn desperately. Okay? We, we cannot handle people outdoing us. We cannot handle hearing other people praised. We cannot handle right, um, our children, in, in a lot of cases, doing better than we did. And, and we must be humbled in this area and be like David and like Christ and share, share the glory. Now, next, David's poem about the ideal king referenced the house of David. He talked about his own house. Now, Second Samuel has made a frequent use of this victory house-building pattern. There are victories in battle, and then and as a result of that, God builds the house of the one who won. We saw this in the opening cha- chapters of Second Samuel. The more victories David had, the faster his house and the bigger his house and the more glorious his house was growing. At the same time, Saul was losing, Saulides, Saul's followers, Saul's sons, were losing in battle and their house was decreasing. So God blesses you and gives you victory in battle, your house grows. God defeats you in battle and humbles you and, and he's opposed to you in judgment and what happens is your house diminishes. After David's poem... There is another house listed. And the way that this, that 2 Samuel 23, this, this new chapter of God's, or of David's mighty men and his 30 men, the way it's described is like a house, like a household. The, the way they do it is if there is a man and his sons. Because David didn't just have soldiers. David didn't just have followers. David was like a father to these men. And, and we talk about the band of brothers and warfare. There's something about it we don't understand. Well, David had this kind of relationship, not just with Jonathan, but with all the men that he fought with. 
there's, there, there's a love there that's hard for us to understand. Now, if you turn to chapter 23, and we're going to look at verses actually 8 through 39, I might skip some of it. I'm not going to put you people through listening to me read 20 or 30 Hebrew names in a row, so I'll paraphrase. But we turn to 23, and we go to verse 8. Now, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, uh, who David had. Josheb, he was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against the 800, whom he killed at one time. Next, we have Eleazar. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Shema, he defended a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. The Lord worked a great victory. These are the three of the 30 chief men. And at the cave of Adullam, David sat longing, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at, at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against the three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Then we have Benahiah, the son of Jehoiada. David set him over his bodyguard. He struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. <laughs> That's funny. He struck, <laughs> he struck down a really good-looking Egyptian. <laughs> The Egyptian had a great spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. Also, earlier, I'm sorry, I missed it. He killed two Ariel of Moab, which I'll explain in a second. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. <laughs> That's a beautiful image. You're there in a beautiful snowy pit, and he's with the yellow of the lion, and you're slaughtering him. Uh, and then what happens, at the, the rest, is they go on, and, and they talk about the 30. Okay, And I, I'm not going to read that whole thing to you. I'm going to come back at verse 39 to wrap the whole thing up. But what you have, essentially, in this hierarchical structure is you have the three, the three mighty men that we've already uh, that, that he describes there, and that corresponds to the three mighty men that, that Jesus had. Because if you remember, Jesus had the 12 disciples, but there were actually three that went with him when he did very special things. And they were um, there when he did mighty works, raising the dead, uh, the transfiguration. And, and he had that, those three, and they were the leaders of the rest. And so David has three mighty men that are close to him, and they actually are the ones who lead the rest. Okay? So the 30 is just, the, if you read the, if you count up the names, you're like, wait a minute, this is 37, what's going on here? Well, the 30 is, is just sort of a title for them. In Hebrew, the numbers are words and vice versa. So they had this title. It was not always the same 30. Uh, men would die in battle. They would be replaced. Other men would ele be elevated at different times. And so this is just the group, the 30. Okay? And, and this is some of, there's more than 30 because there was more than 30 that served in this group. Now, David's three mighty men, 
the three, are the first that they begin with. And what, what we see here is, is, is a household, just like Jesus will later have. And he had Peter and James and John. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So when, when the, the apostles describe Jesus and his followers, they are describing a house. And, and it's just the same with David. This is his household. His household are, are men of war because he was constantly at war with the Philistines. In the book of Revelation 21, verse 14, it says, And the wall of that city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the apostles are the foundation. And so these men are the foundation of David's household. His household is Israel, and, and that house was built by the sword. And those men who wielded the sword are the pillars and the foundations of the house. Okay, now, Josheb killed 800 men at one time. That's a lot. That, that's quite, he, there are stories of men who hold on to their swords for so long that then when it's actually time to let them go, they can't open their hand. <laughs> and, and I think that's what the reference is. He was swinging that sword so viciously for so long that it actually clung to the sword and it was hard to get, to un, unbend his fingers and get the sword out of his hand. Now, you've got to think, how long do you got to grip something and how hard do you have to be working for that to occur? So that, lots of props to him, okay? I'm just going to say it. Lots of props to that guy. Okay, his bravery was blessed by God. He gave Israel a great victory. And, and what he demonstrates is that when we devote ourselves to the Lord faithfully and uh, taking responsibility, we find God's favor. Okay, this is David's household. This is what it's all about. The circumstances of our lives often look overwhelming, but we serve the triune God who declares through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Okay, who, who, how many, who kills 800 people? Yeah, how many people? <laughs> That's a lot of people. Now, the only equivalent in, in a single battle, I've heard of a few, but um, in um, Black Hawk Down, there's an account of two snipers who were lowered to the ground to defend a crashed helicopter, and they had 800 kills, I think, between the two of them that day. Um, but, but they had automatic weapons. I'm not going to diminish in any way, shape, or form the glory of their victory. Uh, but two guys with sniper rifles killed about, I think they had 800 confirmed kills that day. It was a lot. That's a lot of kills. And, and it, it seems to me problematic, given that we are servants of the Prince of Peace, that somebody like this would be lifted up. But if David is, is gardening, and David's job is to clean the land, then somebody like this um, makes a lot of sense. In, in that way. And, it, and it's an, an amazing feat. Now next, we actually have somewhat of a stranger story involving vegetables. <laughs> and in, within the diet of the Israelites, there is a hierarchy of foods. Um, and I think that if you think about this for a moment, most of us have a hierarchy of foods. M my first five in my hierarchy of foods are ribeye. But there are other ones that come after that. Okay? Now, if, if you see in the sacrificial system, certain animals are valued higher than other animals. Um, Lentils was not something that was high on the list of Israel's food stables. Uh, there's not a problem with it. I mean, the land is referred to as a land of milk and honey, not lentils. Okay? So th there's a lot going on with this lentil field because they didn't value lentils very high. If a man was hungry enough, he'd eat them. Right? And if, what, it, what it tells us is just how desperate things were in those early days of David. That this man would stand over a lentil field, which doesn't rank very high in anybody's world, some people. Some of you may love lentils. I don't mean to offend. Um, but he's willing to die over this lentil field. Why? 
Okay? It represents the land itself. It represents the life of the men because they needed food in those days. Remember how desperate they were, the stories that were told? When they lived in the cave of Abdullam and they were on the run and how hard it was to get supplies, and this man knew that this food was important for the people of God. And so he fought for it, and he won. Everyone else fled away, right? Who's going to stay? This is what I love. Who's going to stay and fight for a patch of lentils? Right? This man will. And how often does it seem we're standing in the field of lentils, and we look around, and everybody's like, you know, there are greener pastures. Well, hold on, let me rephrase that. There are redder pastures elsewhere. And why would we stay and die over this blue lentil field? There you go. Let the hearer understand. And, and what, what I love about this is there are some places worth fighting and dying for, even though they don't rank very high in, in, in the hierarchy of what the world calls important. And, and I think this is an example to all of us in difficult circumstances who perhaps might be living in places like Seattle, who may be having a difficult time with the way uh, things are being run, and you think, why would you stay there and fight over that? Well, there's this guy who once risked his whole life for a lentil field. Imitate him. And I think that that is an important story for all of us to hear. Now, the next guy that they mention here, well, yeah, there's another guy who, uh, who killed, they give us the total of the number of people he killed. He didn't kill them all at one time. He killed them, it's like a, a, a career record, right? You know how we talk about how many points Jordan scored, but we talk about how many kills this guy got uh, in his entire career. But I'm going to move past that. We're going to move past the three as the cornerstones and get to the list of the 30. Um, what, what happened here is that David was longing for the water of his hometown. He desperately wanted a drink of Bethlehem. The Philistines had moved in and they'd, they'd taken his homeland and he's pining away for this water. And, and what I think it represents is that he wants normalcy. He wants the easier days of his youth, right? I don't know how much better the water was in Bethlehem uh, than otherwise. Somebody was just trying to make this argument to me the other day about how much better the water is in Woodenville than Bothell. I didn't see it or taste it, um, but some people think that. But I don't think necessarily the water itself was the point, right, the quality of the water. I think it's what the water represented. And David is surrounded by the kind of guys who think, you know what my commander wants is a little water from this well. And you know what would be fun? Let's go up there and get him some. Now, I have a brother who served in the army, a father who served in the army, a brother-in-law who served in the army. I have a sister who served in the army, and I can tell you that people do things like this. I don't really understand it, but they're like, oh, you know what? Let's go up there and fight those guys and get some peanut butter for the captain. I mean, they do these weird things in war. Okay, why would you go up and risk your lives for a cup of water unless you just loved the guy you were serving? Unless there was a kind of I don't know what to call it, swagger in the whole thing, right? You're trying to prove that you are mighty men. You're used to living and dying every day by the sword. And, and, and if you get to please your captain out of all of this, then it seems like a worthy cause. And it, and it seems outlandish to us. And it, but if you read his history, if you read about wars, you read about men in war, they will in fact do things like this to prove their love and, and loyalty to one another, to show their respect. One of the greatest scenes in Band of Brothers is... The, the, uh, there's, there are two military units. They're separated by a town. They need to get a message to the other side. And so the lieutenant does the only thing that he can think of, and he runs right through the middle of town, past the tanks and between the Germans, and everyone's shocked by what he does. And he delivers the message, and then he turns around and runs back. Now, why did he do that? I think he was just having a little fun. I think he wanted to come back and be with his men. And, and the whole thing has this sort of craziness to it, to us. 
And so people write off this story as David being, right, David is very foolish he, because he receives the water from them and then he pours it out on the ground. And, and normal people like you and me are sitting there thinking, what in the world, why, why, after all that, why would you do that? Well, he actually equates the water with their blood because that's what they risked to get it. He, he is shocked by what they have done. He is extraordinarily touched by what they have done. And he will not dare lift that cup to his lips because it represents their lifeblood. And, and, I mean, we could reference Leviticus 17 about the fact you're not supposed to drink blood. That's what one commentator did because it's not, right? He, they've turned water into wine. They've turned water into blood. There, there's other things going on Christologically. But the real fundamental thing here is that David is comforted. He wanted comfort. He longed for the water of his hometown. And what comforts him is the love and dedication of his own soldiers. And so he pours it out as a sacrifice just as they sacrificed for him to get it. And and it's one of the more remarkable stories. And I think it is just difficult for us to understand because most of us have not served in combat. Um, I've heard, like, Vietnam, World War II, right? There, There are plenty of stories that you hear like this. And it's just remarkable about the love the men had for David and his love for them. It is a bond that is hard to describe, that can only be described in weird stories like this. Now, next, what we have is um, Benaniah's story. It's more detailed, and it's more intriguing. He was the chief of David's bodyguard. They were known as the Pelethites and the Cherethites, and Benaniah was from Judah like David was. In several ways, his exploits, however, reflect David's image as a righteous king. The glory of the sun king, as from David's poem, is reflected in his followers, right? The light of David is a reflection of the light of heaven. And now what you see is that the light in, the, in, in David's men is a reflection of his light. In 2 Samuel 22, verses 29 to 30, it says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Now, the the light reflected from heaven onto David fills him with power and strength to do these amazing feats. Now, the the same light that reflects off of him on his men equips them to do likewise. And this story that we have here about the lions and and these men that he killed, Benaniah, is he's doing things just like David did them. David, like David, Benaniah killed a lion. Remember, David killed lions when he was... Um, serving his father, taking care of sheep, just like David killed mighty Goliath. Benaniah killed a mighty Egyptian, a beautiful Egyptian. Like David, he fought the Egyptian with an unusual weapon, a club rather than a sword or spear. No, nobody explains that. Why has he got a club while everybody else has swords and spears? There's plenty of swords and spears at that point, unless he's simply trying to do something unusual like the way David did it, uh, which is quite possible. David uh, fought against Goliath. Benaniah killed the Egyptian with the Egyptian's own weapon. Remember, uh, David finished Goliath off with his own weapon, so Benaniah finishes somebody off with their own weapon. And, and what you start to see is you accumulate these acts that David had done that others attempt to imitate. Well, I wonder, like my king, if I can run over there and take his sword and kill that guy with it, kill him with his own sword. Well, I wonder if I can run over there with just this stick. <laughs> and again, this goes back to the men in war are very strange. And, and they will do this kind of, this love for one another causes them to do these outrageous things. And because of the, almost the brazen faith of the whole thing, it works. It, it's amazing. Now, Benaniah literally defi- defeats a lion, but he also defeats lion-like men. Ariel, in Hebrew, is lion. So why they don't translate it as lions, 
I, I don't know. So it says he kills two men, Ariels. He kills two lion-like men, men who were ferocious in battle. And then it goes on to tell us that he actually kills an actual lion. Now, by killing the lion in the cistern, and that is actually where it is. It's not a pit. It's a cistern. It's a, wa- it's a source of water for the men. Benaniah saves the water supply for the whole army, just as Jesus descended to battle the roaring lion, Satan, and to make living water available to us. Okay, I, I'm moving through this kind of quickly, but these stories, there's a lot more going on. There's two stories about a man securing water, sources of water, for the men, and, and what they're doing is that mighty feats in battle secure sources of water. Jesus comes and kills Satan and gives us living water and makes us wells of living water. And, and that is what's going on in the background of this story. Now, this list of 30 men that I didn't read because I don't want to make you all succumb to my interpretation of how those names should be said, but these men, it illustrates David's ability to hold the allegiance of men from very different backgrounds. Uh, as might be expected, several of his closest supporters all come from the hill country of Judah. Several of the 30 are foreigners. In addition to several of the 30 uh, are being foreigners, what we see here is Jesus himself. It says in Ephesians that Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. David united men, not just within Israel, but he united foreigners with Israelites. And he is remarkable in this regard. He is the one who unites all the tribes in himself. He had people serving him who weren't even Israelites, who are willing to go up and die to get cups of water. Okay, and all of this is pointing forward in a remarkable way to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now what we have to do, David, right? After all this glory, after all this good stuff, the end of the list, verse 39, it includes Uriah the Hittite. Oh, man. So one of the mighty men of David was Uriah the Hittite, who he murdered so that he could cover up having slept with his wife. And so this is what the scriptures do again and again and again. They show forth the glory of man as God allows them to attain it. And then right at the very end, when you think it's all glorious and good, and this must be the restoration that they were talking about in the garden, and this is magnificent, we're reminded these are but mere men. David is not the savior. And everything that he accomplishes because God loves him, because God allows him to, is marred and messed up and overshadowed because he couldn't keep it in his pants. Right? His own lusts, his own flesh, are the thing that led him astray, up to and including murdering one of these men. After these guys will go out into battle and risk their lives to get a cup of water, he's willing to put one of them to death so that he can have at his wife. And the whole story reminds us that David is not the one who is ultimately going to save us. David was redeemed by the steadfast love, he says in his Psalm 20, in chapter 22 and 23. He talks about the fact that his salvation comes from heaven. He needs somebody to come down and, and to be the things that he is not. No matter what you attain to in this life, no matter how great you are at business, no matter how holy you are, no matter how many psalms you write, no matter how much glory you, you attain on the battlefield, no matter how many men you elevate because of your example, no matter what, you are still sinners. There is still a Uriah on your list. There is no avoiding it. 
And so what David ultimately needed wasn't just to be surrounded by giant killers, wasn't just weapons for his right hand and his left hand. What he needs is God to descend out of heaven and save him. And, and, and to tie this whole thing together, we're going to go to one of the greatest battles ever fought for the kingdom of heaven. It's a day that we don't recall as a battle, but there were 3,000 casualties. Right? One man in the household of God killed 3,000. Now, we've heard numbers. We've heard lions. We've heard 800. We've heard all these numbers. But there was one who slew 3,000 in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in one day. Why? Because his Savior went into the ground and came up again. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 to 36, on the day of Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would um, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we, and of all, and of that we are all of us witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when he finishes this sermon, it says that they were cut to the heart and that thousands of them were converted. Now, no mighty man in the house of David is as mighty as this. And what did they go on to do from here? Were they finished? Oh, no. There were more battles to, to win. Where they cast out demons and raise the dead and slay their hundreds and their thousands because Jesus' household that he built is an army that is advancing, that is winning, but it's not being done with the sword, sword made out of steel. It's done with the sword of his mouth. See, we have... It is practically impossible for us to take stories about David's mighty men and apply them to us. But we are the mighty men in the household of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to go and do it with an actual spear and an actual sword, come into my office after the sermon and we will chat. Okay? I'm glad that you have ARs and the optics should be phenomenal. Awesome. But that is not what I'm talking about. When you have a mother on some random Tuesday afternoon, and she has the homeschooling curriculum in one hand and the switch in the other, that is a mighty warrior slaying demons, slaying giants, because we all know what a five-year-old boy can be like, right? Those of us, there's a, a, a gaggle of beautiful young women in this church, all very small, who do oftentimes seem like giants, Right? And, and we are what? Slaying the dragons that live in their hearts and training them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we are in this place that hates, every, hates our marriages, hates our children, hates everything that we stand for because they hate our God. Are we not giant slayers? Do we not have the word of God's power, the word of Jesus Christ, for which we are dealing with ourselves and we are dealing with one another and we are dealing with the world? David can have his mighty men. I would rather be of this household, which is mightier, which is more ferocious, which has now, right? Should we, let, let's rack up the empires. Anybody seen a Roman? Romans? Anybody? 
Anybody here from the, from the emperor, empire of Rome? How about England? Right? And what do we fear? We fear Russia. We fear communists. We fear Islam. We fear all these things. And all of those giants, one day, will simply be heads on the wall. Right? We will have taken all of them. Why? Because Jesus already won. Right? Look at how mighty the mighty men of David are, and all they had were swords and spears. How much mightier are the, are the mighty of the household of Jesus when what we are armed with is the Holy Spirit and the word of God? And we don't, we think that there's, no, that's them, this is us. Yeah, they're, they're the root. We are the branch. We are near the sun. We are more fruitful. We are standing taller. We are accomplishing more. Because on this side of the grave of Jesus Christ, we have already won. And if we just believed it, if we just loved our wives in light of it, if we loved our children in light of it, if we loved our neighbor in light of what we know Jesus has already accomplished, we would be mightier than any of these people listed in the Old Testament. Who are you? Who is your king? What has he accomplished? What has the son of righteousness done, risen with healing in his wings? And are you not healed? And are you not even now overcoming the world? Are you not overcoming your own circumstances? Are you not victorious in him? There is a promise made to David, fulfilled in Jesus, and Jesus now has a promise to us. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. Now, we have to believe that he has overcome the world. We have to believe that he is at the right hand of the Father. And when we believe that, we will go forth and we will be the mighty army that we are supposed to be. We will be the church militant overcoming this world because it's already overcome. And we don't have to speak so loud. We don't have to be so surly. We say, nice try, but Jesus already won. Nice paganism. God's, God's going to overcome that just like he has overcome paganism. Do you know the number one ritual in paganism? Universally, in paganism, do you know the number one thing that almost all pagan religions have in common? The number of them that convert to Christianity. Why is that? It's like, right? That happens more often than anything else in paganism. Because Jesus is in heaven and he has already won. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for David and his mighty men. We thank you for Jesus and the apostles upon which uh, your house is being built. I pray that we would go from here, Lord, not with uh, pie in the sky triumphalism, but that we would humbly and faithfully serve you in the tasks that you've given us in our everyday workaday lives, that we would know that you have overcome the world, that we are armed with your spirit and your word, even now slaying the giants that stand against you. We thank you in the name of your son. Amen. Amen.